Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Integration, how real faith connects to real life in the epistle of James. I'd like to speak about this passage from James chapter 2, though I was very tempted after the gospel reading just to give it to Chad. Uh, I think he could do really well tonight, and, uh, and uh, you know, I'm a little afraid to face it. But uh, here it is. I'm going to try to face into it tonight. I think that this is probably the most difficult text in all of the New Testament, and I'm not the only one who thinks that, by the way. The church fathers were quite ambivalent about the epistle of James for, for the sake of this very text that was just read. Martin Luther considered the epistle of James to be an epistle of straw to weigh a little less than the others because of this particular passage. Now, this particular text in James' epistle is vexing, not because it speaks of the importance of good works in and of itself. That's not interesting. Lots of New Testament texts do that. It's vexing because it connects good works with justification. And so there's an evident, an evident contradiction in the New Testament about a central matter not about a peripheral matter, like how many wise men showed up, you know, at Jesus' manger, but about how human beings are saved. To quote St. James in chapter 2, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And to quote St. Paul, another prominent author in the New Testament, in Romans 3, a person is justified by faith and not by works. Now, I'm not like a linguistic scholar, Um, certainly uh, uh, not a person who understands uh, all mysteries, but I do understand that if you take those comments at face value, they don't fit in the same world, right? Uh, So we seem to have a contradiction over a very central issue, namely what reconciles us to God. So we probably should figure that out tonight, because if we believe in the coherence of Scripture, and I, I think we ought to, And if we believe in the gospel of grace, that is, undiluted grace to those who are most in need, we must make sense of James chapter 2. So I'm going to focus tonight uh, on making sense of this passage by looking at how James employs two different terms, namely faith and justification. That's all I want to do in the sermon. We're going to unpack how James uses the words faith and justification. And by the time we're done, I hope that we'll see that um, Paul and James are exactly on the same page. They are not contradicting one another. They are defining their terms differently. So, what does James mean by the word faith? And that's a really important question because he says that faith alone does not justify. So, we need to know what he has in mind when he is critiquing, in fact, a particular kind of faith. And I think that's the thing we have to notice. When James is writing about faith here, he is not writing against faith. He is writing against a false kind of non-existent faith. Notice what he says in verse 14. Please follow along with me. What good is it, my brothers, 
If someone says that he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Pay attention to the word that. Can that faith save him? In other words, can this sort of faith save a person? When a person says, I have faith, but I don't believe in working. Can that faith save him? James is, in other words, attacking a particular sort or kind of faith. And he writes quite a bit about that faith or the sort of faith that deserves derision. First of all, he labels it several times in verse 17, verse 26. He calls it dead. In verse 10, he calls it useless. And in verse 26, he likens it to a corpse without a spirit. And as such, this sort of dead faith, this useless faith, faith, this corpse faith, has no effect. No effect. It is unmoved. It is unengaged. Even when life and death matters are presented before this faith, it does nothing. So when the poor come to this person and and essentially need food or clothing so that they don't starve or freeze to death, The person that has this dead faith says, I really hope that you find what you're looking for. I hope that your dreams come true. But they don't lift their finger to do anything. So here comes Tiny Tim, and they shut the door in Tiny Tim's face. Now, this type of faith provides interesting lip service to theological concepts. James says that the person with dead faith might even be a monotheist, a person who says, you know, I think... There is probably some divine energy in the universe that has, a, that has a unified quality, and we are all derived from it. Um, James says that that isn't interesting because even demons would shake their, you know, dirty heads at such a thing, right? You believe that God is one. In other words, you're a monotheist. That's really neat. Even the demons do that, and they shudder, right? So he labels it a dead faith. He says it has absolutely no effect in the social world, and it gives very uh, sort of empty lip service to theological concepts, but it's not deeper than that. So this is the point. James, friends, is not arguing for works and against faith. That's a bad, lazy reading of James chapter 2. James is not arguing against real faith. He's arguing against non-existent faith that proclaims itself as faith. So he's arguing against a dead faith, a false faith. Therefore, James is not telling his audience to have less faith and more works. He's saying that real faith necessarily, as a byproduct, produces good works. By the way, Paul entirely agrees with this. This is why Paul in the New Testament says that when a person is seized by the gospel and they have faith, their lives will produce the fruit of the Spirit right? Love, joy, peace, and so forth. And that's why he says, St. Paul says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Uh, So, real faith produces real works. For James and for Paul, they're on the same page. And for James, real faith must be more than mental assent to certain interesting factoids, more than trivia. For James and for Paul, faith means trusting in those facts for your own personal salvation, right? Leaning all your weight upon those facts and having those facts, of course, permeate and shape your being. False faith merely thinks that God exists. Real faith trusts in God. This is why, by the way, demons might be monotheists, but they cannot stand among us and say the Nicene Creed. No demon can say the Creed tonight. 
Why? Because notice the language of the creed. The creed says we believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit, meaning we're leaning our weight upon these things. We are founding our lives upon these things. Our whole salvation is based upon these things. And by professing the creed, we're saying that we are leaning into these salvific, salvation-oriented realities, trusting that they're going to carry us, and no demon can profess that. Uh, And that's the kind of faith that uh, James wants for us, not a dead faith, but a real faith that really does lean into God and therefore produces fruit. But the trickier issue, what does James mean by the word justification? This is verse 21, the controversial passage. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar You see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works, right? Now, here's what's interesting. The New Testament author, St. Paul, lifts up Abraham, that ancient Jewish grandfather, that patriarch, as an icon of justification by faith, that he is the evidence that we are reconciled to God not based on what we do, but simply through trust. But James says here that Abraham was justified by works, so we either have a blatant contradiction about this central issue, or these two authors define their term justification differently. And that's what I want to argue with you, that they define their term justification differently. How does Paul, this major New Testament author, perceive justification? Define it. He perceives it, he defines it as acquittal. Justification is acquittal. Now, what is acquittal? Acquittal is a courtroom term that means a person who is on trial for a particular crime is declared by the judge to be not guilty of that crime and therefore free of all charges. This is Romans chapter 4 where Paul writes, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Um, Counted, meaning reckoned, that's courtroom language, reckoned by the court of heaven to be innocent. The oddity of the New Testament is that the people who are declared to be innocent are the same who are guilty, but that guilt has been absorbed into the person of Jesus Christ and dealt with definitively on the cross right? Our guilt imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us. The result is that we are innocent before the throne forever. God has declared it so. That's what St. Paul is saying. So, for St. Paul, justification is always acquittal in a courtroom. You are free of all, all charges. No guilt for you. And yet, the word justification is used in one other way in the Bible by other authors, This is what's so difficult about uh, the the Holy Scripture. You have in the Holy Scripture a library of books, a large collection of books written by different authors over different time periods who sometimes define their terms a little differently. Uh, And it was defined differently in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is uh, is this confession that David makes before God after his fairly reckless affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband. You may remember that story in the Old Testament. And this is what David writes in Psalm 51 about justification. Against you, speaking to God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
God is the one who is justified in this situation. So that cannot mean that God is declared not guilty. It isn't so much that. God is not imputing his sin to somebody else. That's not a thing, right? This view of justification says that this definition can say that justification can mean to outwardly demonstrate or to show something, to prove something. In other words, when David is saying, you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, he is saying, God, your holy character is evidenced, is shown, is proven. That's what he means by justification, is proven when you rightly accuse me of sin. When you accuse me of sin, God, you are evidencing, externally evidencing your holy righteous character. Sometimes justification, that's what it means, to outwardly demonstrate, to show, to evidence to the world. Luke chapter 7, we read it tonight, says much the same thing, where Jesus says about his own ministry, wisdom is justified by her offspring. Matthew says by her deeds. In other words, Jesus' wisdom, his brilliance, his rightness, his insight, his justice is proven by its results. It's evidenced by its results. So if you want to understand Jesus' nature, look at what he does and you'll understand it. In other words, sometimes justification means to outwardly demonstrate or show. When I was applying for grad school at one of the places I didn't get into, uh, uh, there was an essay in which I could earn a scholarship, and I I actually wrote down part of the question because I thought it was so theologically interesting, and it was this, and this was for a seminary, justify why you believe you merit a full scholarship. I tried. Uh, They wanted me to prove or to demonstrate my competencies, why I deserved a free ride to their their school. Evidently, I failed the test, uh, and I went to Trinity instead. Um, But there it is. There it is. So sometimes uh, justification can mean that, to externally demonstrate or prove. Now, do we have any evidence that James is using the word justification in this way, that is to show or to prove, not so much acquittal, but to show or to prove? Lots, endless supplies of it. But just to cite um, a few verses here, let's look at James chapter 2, verse 18. Look for the word show. You may see it repeated several times. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he carries on. The whole idea is that uh, James' epistle, not just in this section, but in his entire epistle, uh, his content is about the outward demonstration of faith. James never, not once, cites the core content of the creed. Do you realize that? He doesn't talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus in his letter. He's not interested in core Christology or the the, the central tenets of Christianity. He is interested in how Christianity applied evidences itself in the outside world. Um, He is, therefore, we have good reason to believe he isn't talking about how sinners are declared righteous before a holy God. Instead, he is talking about how that prior justification is evidenced, how a saved status is evidenced. If I can put it in another way, a theologically sophisticated way, justification by faith is justified by works. 
Justification by faith is justified by works. Translate, meaning a gracious acquittal before a holy God is externally evidenced by good works. That's what James is after. And so James and Paul are not contradictory. They agree that true faith produces good works, and they define justification differently. Moreover, we know for a fact in the New Testament that James and Paul are on the same page because they both met together in a formal church council to decide this very matter. You may know, if you are familiar with the book of Acts, if you just chop it in half and go to Acts 15, they had a whole church council about this, about whether or not Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, needed to earn their salvation by works or whether they didn't need to follow the law of Moses, which was the law and covenant of works, and could simply be in the same way that others were in, simply by faith in Christ. And this is what Peter says in Acts 15. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? We believe, no, and then he says, no, emphatically, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So when they decide the matter about how Gentiles get into the church, whether it's by works or grace, they say grace, and that's a church council in which everyone is agreed and how, how does James of Jerusalem respond to this church council? He agrees with it. So do Peter, and so does Paul. And therefore, there's no contradiction when it's officially decided. And this epistle was written after that. And so, friends, what does James mean by the word faith? He means a real trust that evidences itself in an altered life. What does James mean by the word justification? He means evidence or things to be proven. He's not referring to acquittal before the throne of heaven. <clears throat> now, how does this text sink down into our lives? I think this passage is almost always mispreached and misapplied in two different ways. So let me tell you what they are so I can tell you the real interpretation. Here we go. The first misapplication is when a preacher doubles down on the need for a congregation to do more good works, to work harder. The preacher reasonably reasons that faith without works is dead, so he essentially says, hearken unto me, all ye slackers, and get to work now. The church needs more money, so up your tithe. The cell groups need support, so get your butt into one. Prayers need to be prayed, so be more disciplined. Your kids need attention, so put down your stupid iPhone. Our community needs help, so volunteer your time. Now, at first, all of this seems laudable because good works are, well, good to do, and they're necessary for the betterment of our lives. But James' deeper point uh, is not saying that we just need to do more good stuff. James is saying that a real living faith is necessary in order to do more good stuff. Therefore, barking at people whose faith is dead to produce more works is pretty fruitless. All the exhortation in the world to do good works will never resurrect a dead faith, just like performing CPR on a dead person will never raise them to life. But another misapplication is when the preacher emphasizes faith. Here's what I mean. That is, they call their congregations to have real faith 
in order to produce real works, realizing that faith is pretty, pretty much the key issue here. It's the root from which springs the spiritual fruit. But again, having real faith is needful, but telling people simply to have real faith or more faith isn't very helpful since real faith isn't something we can simply conjure up through willpower, just as we can't force ourselves to be truly happy in the middle of a great depression. Some of you have actually experienced that. There's a great sermon, and I can say his name because, I mean, he's a public figure and he said this publicly. Joel Osteen, uh, whom some of you have heard of, and I'm jealous of his hair and his teeth. Um, but Joel Osteen once preached a sermon on depression, and his key line from the sermon, funniest thing I've ever heard, was, hey, if you're feeling sad, why don't you try feeling happy? And I'm like, Hallelujah! Problem solved! You can throw away that Zoloft. Just kidding. But, you, but similarly with faith, you can't just make faith happen. You can't just conjure up faith in and of itself. And by the way, friends, faith in and of itself isn't the point anyway. Max Weber, the sociologist, once remarked that Americans are renowned for having faith in faith. He said, Americans just like to have faith. They tend to believe that faith in anything is beneficial. Because faith creates psychological calm for our minds, a general niceness for our neighbors, and fewer stomach ulcers for our health. Um, some preachers can sound like this, just believe more and then maybe you'll do more. But that's not enough either, because we need something or someone trustworthy and real upon whom we can believe. And I think this, what is coming, is a more helpful application. Namely, it is my job as your minister my chief job, to connect you with the true source of living faith and living works, namely a living Christ. That's what everybody in this room needs more than anything. That is the deepest root that produces the spiritual fruit, Christ. Living works and living faith are always derived from him because Christ was a man whose life was devoted to good works, whether it was tearing down the pride of the powerful or disarming the violent or compelling evil forces out of helpless victims or including the untouchables or healing sick children or touching the contagious or remaining personally unstained by lust and avarice. Peter preached it in Acts chapter 10. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. And yet his best work, his most good work, was neither teaching nor curing, but accepting his own annihilation. Accepting annihilation on the cross, an act of absorption in which he took into himself all of our mania, our cruelty, our regret, our evil. He was pummeled to death by our bad works so that he could do the best work of all, namely justify sinners, acquit us, grant amnesty to every last one of us. Friends, we are in fact saved by good works. They just happen to be the good works of Jesus. Jesus has given us his everything, quite literally every drop of blood he had. And when we believe in him, trust in him, identify with him, rest in him, our lives are impacted by his contagious love for good works. In other words, when we come into close encounter with him as Savior, he shares with us his very nature and his very goodness and his very love for good works. When we abide in Christ, we are certain to become fruitful. 
Friends, every last one of us, every last one of us was beautifully crafted by a good God to be his emissaries of goodness in the world. You were made and created in Christ Jesus for good works. You were made to illumine the world in its various spheres, in family, in study, in science, in poetry, in politics, in art, in architecture, in literature, in relationships, in philanthropy. We can do good works in this world that, um, that shine with glory and that remind people that there's something more going on in the majestic magic of the world. It's not just power structures and it's not just economics, that there's a God who has invested himself in the world and the goodness of that God is evidenced when we do good works. Uh, it helps to lift the world a little bit more out of hell. And this only occurs, this power in us only occurs when we lean into that source, the source of all faith and all good works, who is Christ. Ultimately, friends, uh, we are saved by Christ. Faith is the open hand that latches onto him, and good works are the things that flow from that relationship. So if this text from James punctures your heart a little, and makes you worry about whether your faith is strong enough or whether it's lively enough or whether your works are pristine enough, I have one exhortation for you. Grab on to Christ. Don't believe in your own repentance. Don't believe in your own abilities. Believe in the one who was good for you, the one who can make you good. Be seduced by his gospel. So I ask you this very night to take your eyes off of your works, whether they are pristine or damaged, because you're probably wrong about that assessment. And take your eyes off of your faith, whether it's strong or weak, because you're probably wrong about that assessment. And instead, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Be owned by Christ, defined by Christ, adopted by Christ, justified by Christ, and in turn, your Christ will most certainly shape you into an agent of goodness within the world that he so loves. Because friends... Bottom line is, Christ is for you, 100% for you, and therefore you can give your life away to the world. Amen. Free at last, they took you.